Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Not long after its discovery, CRISPR gene editing technology has already exploded into a multi-billion dollar global industry. But this rapid expansion has raised concerns over who is guiding it. Generally free from regulation in the United States and abroad, the companies researching CRISPR lack dedicated advisors to balance the goals of scientists and product makers against the interests of the general public. Is the voice of society represented in the boardrooms that control this biotech industry? Here to help us answer this question is Joe Chiarella, a technology entrepreneur and contributor to the National Catholic Bioethics Center's monthly publication, Ethics and Medics. Joe, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. All right. Now, you know, your, your background is in uh, IT and software, science, technology. So would you uh, briefly describe the sort of oversight that is currently in place in academic and commercial research labs? Sure, I'll take a crack at that, Phil. Uh, probably best to point out that, uh, at least as far as it relates to CRISPR and uh, those kinds of gene editing, gene uh, engineering technologies, which is where I'm sort of focused in this, uh, this is a pretty complex problem. It's global. We have nearly 200 nations on the planet today, and so the answer to the question will vary from country to country. And so I'll give you a couple examples to sort of narrow that down a bit, though. So when we talk about uh, research in embryonic or gene editing kinds of things in the United States, there's really two ways we can control and restrict that research. One is by legal, governmental kinds of restrictions, uh, and one is by funding. So let's take them in that order. In the United States, is there a legal entity that acts as oversight to research in this area? Not really. Now, it's a little different in the UK, and I'll come back to that, but in the United States, there isn't one today. We have the National Academies of Science, which held a gene editing summit or hosted a gene editing summit in December of last year, and they came out with a statement at the end of that summit that meant as a guideline to researchers uh, that they hope everyone will voluntarily subscribe to. And I really want to give a lot of credit to Dr. Jennifer Dowdman here, uh, who's sort of instigated that thing. She's one of the two discoverers of CRISPR, uh, Cas9, and so She's, she instigated this, and so kudos to her for doing that. She's trying to be responsible. But in terms of formal oversight on any research institution in the United States today, is there a legal restriction now? Now, the NIH has come out and publicly stated that they will not fund embryonic research, or I'm sorry, gene editing research on human embryos. So that restricts the funding, and therefore in the United States that gets a little harder to do because there isn't money to do it unless you go to private research, which I'll come back to. Now, contrast this a little bit with the UK. Uh, the United Kingdom a couple of years ago uh, formally uh, regulated this kind of activity, 
with their Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, or the HFPA for short. And they have legal authority over human embryo research. So today in the UK, if you want to do that kind of research, you must apply to the authority, and the authority must grant you a license to do it. If they don't grant you a license, you can't do that research. And there are actually 18 active, publicly known research projects that the HFEA has authorized in the UK today. So in, in short, to wrap that up, the oversight is either legal or funding, and it varies from country to country, and that's part of the problem. With 200 countries and the, the inexpense of uh, CRISPR today, uh, it's very accessible to even poor nations. So any research can be done. Uh, who knows where? All right. Um, you mentioned in the U.S. It seems like um, here in the United States there are stricter um, rules governing it than in other countries. Would that be correct? No, I would say, in fact, that the U.K. is a little more restrictive than the United States, and uh, you know, China is less restrictive. Uh, there was a survey done, I don't want to say three years ago, of I think it's the top 39 industrialized nations on the planet to sort of assess what the restrictive environment was, you know, how much restriction and how was it restricted. And about a third of those that came out as being legally restrictive, meaning that uh, you could not do certain kinds of research by law. Uh, there are other countries that came out as guided, and that's where the U.S. sort of comes out, uh, as the NAS and the NIH guide that research, but they don't legally restrain it. And then there are other countries, uh, like Brazil, for example, that uh, they're completely uh, ambiguous. There's no clarity on what restrictions exist or what oversight exists at all. All right. Now... You've been, uh, if, if I'm correct, you say that what we need, uh, in addition to this guidance, are dedicated bioethicists, bioethicists on the advisor, advisory boards for these companies, correct? Yeah, so let's, uh, let's talk about the, and, and I'm sorry, I didn't fully answer that question before when you asked about commercial research. So there's actually research being done today in this area in academic research laboratories, which is basic science research, in government laboratories, which would be basic or applied, and then in commercial laboratories where it's primarily applied, where they take that basic research and try to apply it to technologies and then commercialize them into products. And so the oversight in corporate America, and there are now four companies, uh, at least four well-known companies, uh, that are doing, they were founded primarily to do CRISPR kinds of research in therapeutics, uh, and, and applied research. And to the best of my knowledge, none of those four companies have any bioethicists or anyone on their board of directors or their board of advisors to speak to this concern, the, the bioethical concern. So let me draw a little bit of a parallel there. Uh, in most corporations today, we have boards of directors. And what is their primary role? They represent the investors and shareholders and stakeholders of that company 
in terms of representing their views, since you know public companies could have millions of shareholders, they can't all show up to guide that company. So we as shareholders appoint directors to uh, do that on our behalf, and they represent the views of those investors and shareholders and stakeholders of that company. And, and I would ask the question for these companies that are doing this kind of research, who represents the views of the general public when it's a technology that could conceivably impact all of humanity? Why is humanity not represented on the boards of advisors at least, if not the board of directors of those companies? And oversight might be a bit of a strong term for it. Maybe guidance is another term, but uh, at least someone at the table who's asking the questions that the peer researchers or the or the product makers in those companies may not be asking because they're focused on producing a product, whereas someone else, like a bioethicist, is focused on the topic of the conversation with the public who is affected by that research, and therefore the public needs to be represented at the table, and I don't believe they are today. But isn't that the purpose of the guidelines set forth by the academies and uh, other moves in that direction? It is. And, and I, I absolutely, again, applaud the work of Dr. Doudna and all the folks who were involved in the Gene Editing Summit uh, in December of last year. And just to be clear, who was there? The National Academy of Science was uh, the host. The National Academy of Medicine was a, a co-participant as was the uh, United Kingdom's Academy of Sciences, and even the Chinese Academy of Sciences and Academy of Medicine were represented there. So this was a voluntary uh, dialogue. And at the end of it, they wanted to come out with some statement that would act as guidance for all the countries that were participating there and beyond. But I emphasize uh, that having been done, we can look at these companies and still see that, yes, perhaps they're adhering to the guidelines, but they're not required to legally. Do you think that that legal element of it is going to become part of it, or is it always just going to be a guideline, at least for the foreseeable future? Uh, <laughs> I think in, in this particular election year, it's even more difficult to speculate on what that future would be, Phil. I don't know that I want to hazard a guess. Uh, I don't, and then I'm not even sure that I want to see regulation uh, or laws written here to restrict or govern this. But again, I'm not sure I don't either. My compromise position as a businessman, I, you know, I, you know, I've, I've owned businesses and and I, I respect my board of directors. Um, in fact, I value them. I consider them a great asset, and I work with them regularly. And um, I don't, I'm not a big fan of being overly regulated, so I'm not sure that I want laws to do this. But at the same time, I want someone present at the table uh, to help be the voice of the public and ask the tough why questions. I know that you know you mentioned you don't want to be overregulated. You know, in the business sector, what uh, especially in this uh, realm of research and development would be some of the risks of overregulation. That's a good question. Um, certainly, anytime uh, you and I'm not sure I want to 
you know, I don't know what over-regulate means. It's the operative uh, prefix of over there. But I think if there's too much regulation, then any discovery could be missed. Um, innovation can be stifled. New products, new technologies that help humanity cannot make their way to market. Uh, of course, the flip side, we all know, with not enough regulation, then other kinds of disasters can occur. It's about finding the balance point. All right. Um, in, and and I, I know you said this might be somewhere you don't want to hazard a guess, but what would overly rigorous kind of like guidance look like for, you know, genetic uh, genetic research? A at least intuitively, it seems like there should be a larger, um, a greater level of care than, say, regulating uh, the, uh, you know, toaster industry or even the automobile industry um, because we're dealing with human lives here. Yes, and, and I would argue not even, or not, not only human lives, but, uh, you know, CRISPR and technology like this uh, is applicable to, you know, the agriculture industry, to uh, animals, you know, plants. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of implications here, uh, and not to create an alarm in the part of your audience, but not necessarily to cover it up either. I mean, CRISPR is dirt cheap. You can buy a kit for, you know, 120 bucks, and somebody in some third or first world country uh, who gets their hands on, you know, streptococcus bacteria starts tinkering with uh, the genes of this thing, and suddenly you've got something much worse than MRSA, uh, kinds of bacteria, viruses. I mean, our own government has declared that CRISPR could be a weapon of mass destruction because they're concerned about these potentialities, even some researchers uh, that are part of the CRISPR sort of clan of folks um, have echoed that concern. And so we, we have to put some level of restriction on this. Um, and, and that comes from two perspectives. One is, what are the dangers and how do we minimize those dangers from just the pure danger standpoint? Like I said, creating a superbug that wipes out, you know, a third of the planet, uh, whether that's humans or otherwise. Um, and, and then there's the, the ethical, moral kinds of questions that also have to be asked. And in a pluralist society or a pluralist global planet like we live in, uh, we have to assume that the views of the scientist who's doing the research is not going to be represented, uh, it's not going to be the same as the views of everyone else on the planet. So it's possible that the scientist may do research that other members of the planet deem unethical or immoral. And so how do we have that conversation about what the limits are? And that's essentially the question here is, how do we have the conversation about that? And it can only be had in the public forum where everyone has a chance to have that conversation. And in my view, it's the role of the bioethicists to facilitate that conversation and to bring their particular 
expertise and training to bear in, in teasing out the important questions to be asked in that conversation so that everybody has a, has a chance to voice their, their views on this and we can reach agreement on uh, what is and isn't permissible. And then if we decide to codify that into law, that's, that's certainly a path we can take. But first, we have to figure out what those limits are. All right. Um, so talking about these bioethicists, would there be differences between the ideal bioethicists to advise academic research versus political uh, policy versus um, applied research? Yeah, actually, I do. I do think there's some, there are going to be some differences there. For example, in, in the case of a corporate entity, um, and I'm not sure if I'm permitted to speak specific company names on this or not, so I'll avoid that, I guess. But uh, one, like one of the two publicly traded um, companies that are involved in CRISPR research today. A bioethicist that serves the needs of the public and the needs of that enterprise is someone who probably also has experience in dealing with issues relative to commercial ventures, commercialization of products, publicly traded companies, etc. It's important that they obviously are a bioethicist so that they can they can uh, navigate that dialogue on behalf of uh, again, the, the public concern here. Um, so they have to have that training and background. But I think it's also important that they understand the difficulties and the challenges of operating a business in that climate so that they can, they can add value to that exercise in an efficient way. That's going to be a different set of expertises, out, the, sort of the super expertise outside of bioethics as, a, as a, an abstract idea. Um, that's going to be a different set of expertises than someone who's accustomed to navigating the politics of Capitol Hill, where they're trying to affect public policy. So they're bioethicists in both cases, but I think it's important that they they know the domain in which they operate. Does that make sense? It does. Um, related to that, then, um, besides just their pra their individual practical experience, if you will. Um, talking about their, I guess, ethical background. You know, there's a huge difference between a bioethicist, let, let's say Peter Singer, and, say, Edward Furton. Depending on who you pick, you're going to have a very, very different uh, set of guidelines. And how do individual institutions, whether they be academic or commercial or public, pick... Um, kind of how conservative or how liberal their bioethicists will be? Yeah, well, you, you know, that's a mouthful of a question right there. And I think there's, it's going to be difficult. Um, I mean, that answer is going to vary from enterprise and organization to enterprise and organization. I hail from, um, you know, I personally hail from a, a deeply and devoutly Catholic perspective. And uh, in this case of CRISPR and embryonic research, um, you know, I, I, I'm a student of John Paul, St. John Paul II, Theology of the Body. Uh, I've studied this. I understand it uh, to the extent that I'm able to understand it. 
but there's there's a there's a certain beauty in the dignity of humanity in the way that God designed us. And so, from my perspective, I would rather that uh, everyone who's engaged in this dialogue consider that perspective. But I respect we live in a global society where that perspective may not be shared with everyone as much as I would like it to be. And so uh, each enterprise is going to have to find their own path in choosing a bioethicist. Uh, I just hope I would prefer, and Edward Curtin, frankly, uh, be, be at that table. Uh, because I, I think I understand the views that he represents and hails from are similar to my own. So what it would seem like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that what you mentioned earlier about ultimately all of these discussions need to happen in a public forum, and it seems like that public discussion would help be a check or a balance on um, views of individual bioethicists, which may be more or less liberal or conservative than the society's norm. My view on this is that uh, um, light always shines. And so in, in having the conversation in the public sphere as guided by a bioethicist, in a sense, regardless of that bioethicist's personal sort of value set, let's call it, um, if, they're, if they're true to their title, they're facilitating the dialogue. And in the public forum, that means that, um, you know, I believe the truth will come out. I believe that um, this discussion will lend itself to uh, an outcome. It, it serves the public good. It serves the moral good. All right. Um, kind of following off of this, and I don't, uh, don't know if you have any insight into this, you know, at the moment, you know, the general populace, you know, has, uh, you know, tries to inform, individuals try to inform themselves about economics, about foreign policy, things like that, so that they can participate in these, in, in the public forum. Um, do you think that in the coming years that bioethics and these other issues are going to become something that we see the again general populace begin to know more about and inform themselves about uh, I not only believe it's going to happen in the future Phil I believe it's already happening these are conversations that I am having with uh, folks that are friends of mine who are in no way connected with um, you know biology or bioethics or biotech uh, this is a concern it's you know there are some <laughs> some handy soundbite terms like designer babies that are helping to bring this topic to uh, the public mind. And so the laity, the common man, if you will, uh, is, is growing in familiarity. And I've seen this before in some of the work I've done in IT and software. We talk about cybersecurity. I mean, 10 years ago, I could tell you, uh, data breaches and uh, privacy and who can and cannot look at your data and your phone and your computer and all those kinds of things were, were not part of the public conversation and they are today and it's a good thing. All right. Um, what kind of questions 
uh, do you find people like your friends asking? Well, they're asking what are the real risks here? And, uh, you know, from just the standpoint of humanity, once we start tinkering with our genes in this fashion, and to some degree we've been doing that in research, but the concern is, does it get out of the lab? And what's the risk of that? Obviously, you know, science fiction has, has brought some of this to the public mind uh, with everything from, you know, Frankenstein forward. But, you know, the practicalities of this are, uh, as it plays out, at least in the dialogue so far, are we going to be eliminating diseases from babies that are genetically inherited? Certainly that's one of the goals that researchers are working towards. Is that a laudable goal? Yes. The concern is, what's the cost to get there? So to put that in a practical context, um, you know, the HFEA in, in the UK, for example, I mentioned them earlier, uh, they they govern and restrict research on human embryos. And one of their restrictions is that a human embryo that is edited cannot, A, ever be implanted in a woman's womb to grow the term. And B, not only that, it can only exist in the laboratory for 14 days. But some, and my morality and some other morality, would say that that embryo is a life. And so to experiment on it in a laboratory, uh, even for 14 days, for one hour even, is an atrocity. And, and that that's undesirable. So in some of the conversations I've been having, uh, folks are aware of this. They're like, you're experimenting on embryos, but aren't those lives? I mean, why? How do they get away with that? Why are we? And then they destroy them at the end, or what do they do with them? So these are some of the questions that I'm hearing the common man, as it were, asking. Research is good. And uh, I applaud the scientists and the biologists and the biotechnicians who are doing all this work. Their, their intentions are quite noble. I have no out about that. Even Dr. Doudna's work and, and her partner, Trippentier, Dr. Trippentier, wonderful, I'm sure, goals that they have in mind. Uh, I just don't want to sort of rush headlong uh, without slowing down. Uh, sort of my personal statement on it is uh, I'd like to see us um, as noble as those goals are. I'd like to see us pause and ask some why questions that we may not be asking today. Well, thank you very much, Joe. I really appreciate your time coming onto the show. Bill, thanks for having me. I uh, hope you have a super day then. Hey, you too. Thank you. For more information on CRISPR or to find answers to other bioethical questions, visit our website ncbcenter.org and subscribe to our publications Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I'm your host, Phil Cerrone. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.